You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Rob Tumbrella. If we've not met before, my name is Rob, and I just want to say thank you. Thank you if you're brand new and we've never met before. I'm one of the pastors, and I'm, I'm so glad that you're here with us. Uh, last week, we started a new series called God's Imperfect Family, and we're talking about the challenges and the tension in family, sometimes the dysfunction of family, and we're seeing what the Bible has to say about family. And what we're doing together is we're really exploring how God has grace for our imperfections in family and for our dysfunctional moments and, and our, our, our patterns in our family. And the way that we're seeing that is we're seeing God's grace for his family, uh, specifically in the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So last week, uh, we were introduced to a man named Abraham, who God started a new story with and a new family with. And today, we're going to look at his son uh, named Isaac. And so we are in Genesis chapter 25. It's on page 12 in the Bible underneath you or in the seat in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, take it with you. It's our gift to you. Or pull out your device and turn there to Genesis 25. If there's a question that comes to your mind about anything while I'm uh, preaching, there's a, there's a number up there on the screen that you can text your question in, and we'll talk about that at the podcast uh, this week. So as you're turning there, let me pray one more time and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Spirit of God, we, we welcome you as we have, as we've been singing now, as we open up the word together. Lord, we ask that you... Uh, would speak to us through your word. Encourage us, build us up, point us to Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're in Genesis 25, and we're introduced in Genesis 25, verse 19, to a man named Isaac. So you'll see that it says, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old. When he took Rebekah, the wife of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So who is Isaac? Well, Isaac is the, the, the promised child that's born of faith. He was the original plan before Abraham and Sarah kind of went their own way and did their own thing in Genesis 16 and took on this other wife, and Ishmael's born, and then God says he's going to use that and meets Hagar and all that. Well, now Isaac has been born uh, when Abraham and Sarah were very old, 86. He's the, he's the child of the impossible. He's, he was the child that they never saw coming, that they just didn't believe, but then they trusted the Lord, and here he comes, and his name literally means he laughs because Abraham laughed at the prospect that God could ever do this, and Sarah definitely laughed at the idea that in her old age, she would actually uh, have a child, conceive and have a child. So they named the child, he laughs. They weren't very creative back then with, with names. They just, they just picked the name that seemed appropriate, named him, he laughs, and that's his name. Uh, 
we learn uh, after that episode that Isaac is a man of faith. He trusts God when God asked his father to sacrifice his one and only son, who was him, uh, biologically, and to see God provide a substitutionary sacrifice uh, through that. And so he sees all that go down. He trusts God. He sees his dad trust God, and God provides. And so we're instantly uh, caught up in this idea that Isaac is a man of faith. He, he does trust God. He trusts God for a wife among God's people because back then the temptation was to go among other tribes and other clans and other groups and other gods to find a wife. He doesn't do that. He trusts, uh, he finds a wife among God's people. And he himself must trust God for the impossible to conceive a child when his wife is barren. Just like his parents, he and Rebecca experience infertility and challenge and, and waiting upon God in the same way that his parents had to wait upon God. And as they wait, he takes a step further than his dad in terms of just trusting and obeying God. He waits like his dad doesn't wait and like his mom doesn't wait. Uh, and they pray and they believe God. So that's what we see here in this passage. Isaac prayed to the Lord because she was barren. That's what he did. He was a man of faith. And the Lord granted his prayer. When there's this turmoil in the pregnancy, Rebecca also prays. She went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord answered her. So both of these individuals are people of faith. And what we talked about last week is faith is what helps us enter into this covenant relationship with God. It's the only way that we enter into a relationship with God. Uh, it's a surrender of control. It's, it's trusting God, and that's what they uh, did, and that's what we are called to do. And, uh, and so he believes God in spite of impossibilities. He believes. But we also see in Genesis chapter 26 that Isaac, for all of his faith, also had flaws and plenty of flaws. Just like his dad, who lied to Pharaoh, Isaac lies to the king of the Philistines, Abimelech, calls his wife his sister in this self-protecting, self-preservation moment, allows, you know, his wife to be looked upon and available, and Abimelech catches wind of it because Isaac is laughing, like flirting with his wife, and he's like, wait a second, hold up. She's your wife. How then could you say she's my sister? And Isaac said to him, well, because I thought lest I die because of her. It's very selfish, very self-preserving. And Abimelech in the story says, what is this that you've done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife, and you would have brought this guilt upon us. So it's this crazy moment where Abimelech, who doesn't believe in Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, believes these other gods, is seen as more righteous than Isaac. And just like Pharaoh, in, in that moment, was seen as more righteous than Abraham. So here we are. Uh, he's a man of flaws. And in verse 24, we see the day that the birth was completed. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in the womb. It's a day of celebration. I'm a twin. Let's give it up for twins. I'm a twin. Woo! All right. And uh, it's, well, all right. Uh, children are born. Uh, and then verse 25, I guess not, it's not all good. The first one came out red. Uh, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Esau means red. So they, uh, 
Yeah, so they named him Red. So verse 26, afterward his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So Esau comes out, he comes out red, he, he comes out uh, hairy like a cloak. Some of you men thought you had problems. Like, n- you don't have a problem like this, I, I don't think. Uh, this guy comes out really really hairy so uh and really red and he'll stay red i mean he looks red and he stays red throughout the story of esau red with anger jacob is literally coming out grabbing the heel so they named him jacob which means he takes by the heel he's called heel grasper heel grabber uh, so that's what they named him and the interesting thing about jacob is that that also has this negative connotation of a deceiver and a cheat and that really will summarize Jacob's life going forward in, in his story. He continually grabs the heel. He continually cheats. He continually deceives. And, and, and Esau is one of those that he continually deceives. So he'll keep deceiving, and Esau is going to stay red, hot, with fury and anger at, at his brother. Well, in verse 27 and 28, we see something very interesting because it informs what's going to take place afterwards. We see that when these boys grow up, this is now kind of the teenage years, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. I'm intentionally slowing down because that's a very important two verses. Verse 29, it's going to set up what's going to happen next. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and he drank and he rose and went his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. So everything in verse like 29 and 30 seemed kind of normal. They're different people. They, are, they have different skills, and they're just all together. They look different. They do different things. Esau's a skillful hunter, goes out, hunts stuff. Jacob stays in the house. He's quiet, dwells in the tents. He cooks. He does that kind of stuff. He does house stuff. Um, Esau comes in, famished from being on the outside. Let me eat some of that stew that you've been cooking. I'm so tired. I'm so exhausted. That's normal. But what happens in verse 31 shows just how dysfunctional this family is. Because because Jacob takes an opportunity, a moment of weakness in Esau, and asks for something that is completely inappropriate, which was his birthright. The birthright was Esau's share of the family estate, and for the firstborn, that was like a double portion. It was like, give me your inheritance. Give me everything that you have for a bowl of stew. So Jacob is a conniving, sneaky guy that knows his brother's weaknesses and exploits it and seizes a moment of weakness to offer a trade 
to where, you know, Esau's not thinking clear, he's exhausted, he's, he's impetuous, he just does silly and foolish things. Well, Jacob knows that about his brother and seizes an opportunity to take something from him, which you could do in that day uh, through, through swearing. And so verse 33, uh, or verse 32, Esau even has a, a moment of almost rationalization, like an, a, a moment of clarity, uh, but then it snatched away. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Well, Jacob could have easily said, well, let me talk about, wait a moment, take, take, hit pause, go get a snack, go get a Snickers bar, and come back before you sell. But he doesn't do that. He takes every moment to close the deal and manipulates them right then and says, swear to me now. It's got to be now. Swear right now to me, and you can have this, this bowl of lentil stew. Well, Esau, apparently, is completely indifferent to the covenant that God made with Abraham. And he's indifferent to his birthright. He's indifferent to the promises. And the stew looked better than all that in that moment. That sounds crazy, but you and I have had crazy moments in our life like that, where something in that moment looked better than to trust God. And so he sells it sells his birthright, and then sits down and eats the most expensive bowl of beans in his entire life. And then gets up, goes away, and then despises his birthright ever since. It was in his possession, but he was indifferent to it. Now he's not indifferent to it. He hates it. He looks with contempt upon what he once had, sold away. Now his brother has his portion of the inheritance. So it's important that we see that Jacob is 100% responsible for his conniving manipulation, his seizing upon, his grasping upon uh, a moment of weakness in Esau. He's responsible for that. It's also important that we see that Esau is 100% responsible for what he contributes to this dysfunction and how he belittles his birthright and is foolish in the decisions that he makes. But there are other people in the story that also bear some responsibility, and we were introduced to that in verse 28. Verse 28 says, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. And note the contrast, but Rebecca loved Jacob. And what we have here is just a classic case of what the Bible calls favoritism. Favoritism is giving unfair preferential treatment to one person or to a group of people at the expense of somebody else specifically for what it gives back to you. That's very important. It's not the same as treating people differently or giving different people different gifts. God gives different gifts. God treats people differently. But this is for what it gives back to you. It's a self-focused kind of thing. It's being selfishly influenced by outward appearance for what it gives back to you. So if you can think of favoritism is rooted in giving somebody a favor for what it gives. It's not a gift. It's a favor for what it gives back to you. And we're, and we're seeing, we see in, in the Bible over and over again that God does not treat people like this and is uh, opposed to favoritism. In Romans 2, 11, it says that God does not show favoritism. 
He's not influenced. He's not, he doesn't have this weakness where he doesn't have this, like, love cup that he's got to get filled by us. He is uh, resplendent and overflowing and gives gifts but does not show favoritism. Ephesians 6, 9, there is no favoritism with him. It, when we see the, the New Testament church, we see this played out in James 2 where people gather together and there is this temptation towards favoritism and towards partiality with people, this weakness, this sin. And so in James 2, uh, James says, my brothers, show no partiality, no favoritism as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing come into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing fine clothes, and you say, sit here in this good place, while you're dismissive to the poor man, and you say, stand over there, sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So James says that that's an, that's, that's an evil thought. That's what, that's evil. Favoritism, partiality is evil, and God is not evil, and he forbids favoritism in the church, and that's what's happening in this family. And if we can think about it, in our life, we have all experienced this in one way, shape, or form, sometimes in the family, sometimes in the workplace. There's a variety of, of opportunities for us to experience favoritism, and there's been moments in our life where we've contributed to that. We are all tempted in this way. We are all tempted to become judges with evil thoughts and to show favoritism for what it gives back to us at the expense of somebody else. Well, why is that so evil? Well, it sows things into us that just, just are uh, unhelpful and discouraging. Think about it this way. It sows doubt into us. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. That's the, the food that he went out into the wilderness and caught and brought back home to Isaac. But I wonder if Isaac ever asked the question, does dad still love me if I don't bring him meat? Did Esau ever wonder that? Did he ever wonder about his place in the family if he wasn't successful going out there and catching the meat and bringing it back? Or did he ever wonder... Uh, I wish I had that special connection that Jacob seems to have with Rebecca. Or maybe he boasted in that idea. I'm the son that Isaac never had. That, that I'm, I'm the one that can do what Jacob can't do. Or I can fulfill what Isaac never did. I can go out and do this kind of thing, and maybe that's why Isaac loves Esau so much. Maybe it's a perfect reflection of him, the chip off the old block. Or maybe he's... He's the son that is achieving what I always wanted to achieve and never really could because I'm good at cooking stuff like Jacob, but I'm not good at going out and hunting. But it still puts, it puts Esau and Jacob in these precarious places in terms of mom and dad. And, and these questions probably lingered in terms of their standing in the family based on their performance. And have you ever done that? Have you ever experienced that uncertainty? That worry, that doubt that can creep in in terms of does this family member love me based on my performance, based on the, the bar that I'm measuring up to? Or have you ever struggled with doubt and uncertainty and just wonder about that? What else does it sow? What other evil things does it sow? Well, doubt leads to jealousy. Esau's jealous of Jacob. 
he probably heard from his mom at some point that the older shall serve the younger. That's a prophecy. Jacob probably heard that. Esau probably heard that. Esau's not willing to submit to that. He never is throughout the story of Genesis. Jacob is jealous of Esau. But what does he have to be jealous of? Well, is there anybody in the room that's been jealous of another sibling's special connection with dad? Maybe you've wanted that special connection and it just hasn't come your way. And Jacob also probably has heard of this prophecy that at some point the the younger is going to be in charge of the family. And he's not willing to wait. So as soon as he has an opportunity, he's grasping at that and just leveraging everything that he can to get that. So there's this jealousy among these, these two brothers. And that eventually leads to separation. So doubt, jealousy, it all leads one place, separation. Jacob gives Esau the bread and the lentil stew. He eats, notice, he drinks, he rises, and he goes away. And then despises his birthright. And so there's this emotional separation, and that's going to lead to a geographic separation between these two. And that's what jealousy leads to, and that's what doubt leads to. Ultimately, it's what favoritism shows into. That's why it's such an evil in the church, and it's an evil when we experience it in our families and in, in, in every context. And when we come to the gospel message, we all come with that. We come with the scars of favoritism, and we come contributing to the hurts of favoritism in other, in other people and other places, and especially in our families. It's the immediate context where we see selfishness show up and where we see favoritism show up, where we see rivalries and competition and displaying and all that kind of stuff, and eventually like separations and, and those kinds of things. We all have experienced that in our family. What we see in the gospel, what we see at the cross is Jesus reversing the effects of favoritism. And, and the first way that he reverses the effects of favoritism is in establishing something that we all desperately need, and that is that we all need a new father. We are all desperate for a new father. Now listen, some of you have never met your father. Some of you, your fathers aren't living some of you have amazing examples of fathers, even to the point where it's, it may be difficult for you to even see any weaknesses in your earthly father. And some of us have had very bad examples of fathers where you've been hurt by your father. Even hearing that God is a father is difficult for you to grasp hold of. And then there's all kinds of spectrums in the middle in between that. But what makes us all the same is even for those who have had good fathers and those who've had poor fathers and bad fathers, maybe even wicked fathers, is that we all need a new father and a perfect father and a perfectly good father. And that is one of the great hopes of the gospel and, and what Jesus connects us to through the cross. Now, on his way to the cross, Jesus said these words. This is in John 14. He says, I'm going to send the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and be, will be within you. He promises the spirit 
And then he says, I will not leave you as orphans. That's a very specific word. An orphan does not have a father. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He touches on a nerve. He touches on a need. He touches on a a truth that unless he does something for us, we will remain as spiritual orphans. And then just two chapters later, he's about to go to the cross, and he says, Father, that's very important, Father, he's praying, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And he says, and this is eternal life that they may know you. That we may know God as a father is the promise that Jesus says, I'm going to the cross to die and rise, to clear out the doubt between our precarious situation between us and God, the way that we relate at a horizontal level with our earthly fathers, to remove all of that and to establish in us a new father connected spiritually through his spirit. And then the apex of the gospel, arguably Romans 8, Paul summarizes this great hope of, of the gospel this way. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. In other words, we, we would only know God in a fearful way because of the disconnect between us running from him and him being so holy. And yet through the cross, he's given us not a spirit of slavery to fall back into that, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons, sons and daughters, sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Jesus died on the cross so that we could have a spirit of adoption and no longer be spiritual orphans. We would no longer live that way or be that way. We would now have a new and perfect and good Father. He suffered so that we could know God as a perfect dad, which is what Abba means. It's the most intimate way that you could ever call your dad in that culture. And this is what Jesus goes to the cross for. This is the promise. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to give you my spirit, my life, and connect you to my father, and he's going to be a new father for you. And then everything in terms of your brokenness and your families is going to start to reverse because now you got a new father And now you also have, number two, a new family. We can know jealousies in our families. We know competitions, and we know competitiveness in our families. But Jesus says, I'm reversing all of that. When when you are connected to me through faith, and I connect you to my Father, now you have a new family, and this new family has brothers and sisters where we're no longer competing with each other. There's no longer this rivalry, this contention with one another. We can love and serve and be known and care for one another. Uh, In his book, Storm Tossed Family, Russell Moore says, uh, the church is not a collection of families. The church is a family. We're not just family friendly. We are a family. Jesus said bearing the cross would mean a willingness to walk away from father or mother, from brothers or sisters. The early church was filled with people who had done just that. They were rejected by their parents and families for embracing a weird Middle Eastern cult, for stepping outside of the culture where respect for the gods was an important part of patriotism. In any healthy church that is on mission, we should be seeing many more people who also have faced such rejection in their families. This does not mean that they are without a family. 
but that they have found a new one. If you've been rejected by your parents or your family, and you are here today, let me offer that to you in and through Jesus and in this local expression of Christ. You have a new family, a new one, a brand new one, and you can be known, and you can bring your stuff in here, and we can share our challenges uh, together, but you don't have to live just for one family. Jesus taught the exact opposite. It's not just family first. The city believes that message. There's nothing uniquely Christian about family first. The city believes that. There's other religions in our city that believe family first. Jesus upends that and says it's God first, and it's it's the kingdom first, and he reconnects us in a new spiritual way. And in this family, you don't have to compete, and you don't have to become, and you don't have to hide anything. You can be known, and you can love, and you can serve, and you can discover your gifts and discover other people, and, and it's a beautiful thing. It's a, it's a new family with a new father, but notice what else. It's a new peace. It's a new peace. Esau and Jacob know separation. They are start in this story to go their separate ways, and next week we're going to see even more of how that separation plays out. But through the cross, Jesus brings two hostile groups, gr- people groups and individuals together. In Ephesians 2, it's described this way. Jesus himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What Paul is saying there is that there was a group of people called the Gentiles and a group of people called the Jews, and there was never a more racially tense situation than these two groups of people. There was a dividing wall of hostility, but what he says is through the cross, the dividing wall of hostility is taken away through the flesh of Jesus being crucified that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's this hostility that exists, and the only way for the hostility to be removed is for it to be killed, and the only way it can be killed is if Jesus is killed when he hangs on the cross. The good news that he was killed in love for us to remove the dividing wall of hostility so that two warring people through Jesus could have one access to God through the Spirit. This hostility is now broken. It doesn't mean it never exists or rears its ugly head or shows up in our families, but the hostility now can be broken. Several years ago, in our family, we experienced a moment of hostility, and it was on a Thanksgiving vacation, and it was like day four of the Thanksgiving vacation, and let's, let's, let's hear it for families to make it to day four of the vacation, and what we, what we planned on this, on, this, on this family gathering was to, at the last day, to have a family photo. It was can we get a collective groan for the family photo? So this is the, the idea was we're going to do this photo at the end. Well, uh, this was after a long week of a lot of little kids in a small house. And, uh, and you know, and we're thinking, oh, we got to take this photo at the end. And we had one, one little, little guy at the time who was not interested in taking 
family photos at all. He was not interested ever, and that was kind of a constant challenge uh, in terms of taking pictures. Well, uh, we were, we just had anxiety for days leading up to this family photo. I mean, we're just like, I mean, we could feel the stress like rise with each passing day, like how's this going to go down in terms of the photo, and is, is this going to work out or is it not, and so I'm stressed out, my wife is stressed out, and I could kind of sense from my mom and others that the, she might be a little stressed out, out about it, so the day arrives, and we, you know, you do those things with your kids where you, you turn the taillight on as soon as you can, just getting ready, hey, in about seven hours, we're going to take a family photo, hey, in about five hours, we're going to take a photo, and we would just do this thing where we were just kind of leading up to it. Well, we all get out on the front porch. We're gonna take this. We're gonna take this photo, and uh, and uh, the, the the worst thing possible, at least in my mind at that moment, happened. I, my my kid doesn't want to take the photo, and everybody's ready. They're on the front porch. Everybody's ready to go, and the kid doesn't want to take it, and just is is wandering off. And uh, and everybody's stressed. I'm stressed. My wife's stressed. My mom is stressed. She's trying to hold everybody together, and she's been cooking all week and just getting this whole thing together. And so in this moment, my my mother. Uh, she, she snapped at, she snapped at us. She, 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 she became mama bear, and she snarled and showed her teeth and snapped. And my wife snapped back. And we're like, oh, this isn't very, this isn't very family friendly. And then my mom snapped back. And then my wife snapped back. And by the way, I have total permission and encouragement from them to share this story. They said, please share this. They both snapped back. And then my mom stood up. I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. And then you'll have to forgive me because everything goes in slow motion at this point. It was like you've been in a car wreck. Everything's like this. You enter into this dream state. My mom stands up, and she starts walking towards my my wife yelling and upset, and my wife is, she's becomes mama bear too. And she starts showing her teeth, and she starts moving towards my mom. And I never in a million years imagined me watching my dad walk over to my mom and kind of do this. I'm like, is this happening? Is my dad holding back my mom from my wife? And then I'm doing the same. I'm like holding back my wife, and I... I this is a nightmare of, of all, it, and everything's going in slow motion, and uh, and uh, and then they're like right next, up next to each other, just kind of yelling. And uh, what my wife remembers about that is she has no idea what they were talking about. She's, but she says, "I remember your mom had really pretty blue eyes," uh, which is just it's like it's crazy what you remember in a conflict. It's just like, wow, she's really pretty because you never see somebody that, up that close. But we're in that moment. Wow, really pretty eyes. Uh, I'm really mad at you, but you're really pretty eyes. Uh, anyway, so, oh, it's so ugly. It was so messy. And my mom storms off. Michelle heads out, and she is just like, it's over. It's like she's telling me it's over. My, it's the family. I'm never, we're never going to be invited back. And I said, I agree with you. I don't think we are. Um, I, this, this is it. This is done. Not really. I'm like, oh, no, remember the gospel. And I'm not remembering anything about the gospel. I'm like, I don't know, I don't know how we're going to. We may not be coming back next year for Thanksgiving. I'm not real sure. Uh, and, and, uh, and so everything's like this. There's this hostility. And then in that moment, 
And which probably 30 seconds later, my mother comes out, and she's broken, and she's sorry, and she's repenting, and she's just a puddle of tears, and she's so sorry. Please forgive me for what I did. And so she's crying, and it's very emotional. And then my wife, so, same way. I'm so sorry for responding the way I did. I shouldn't have done that. So she's crying. And uh, so they're, they're crying. Grandma's crying. Mom's crying. The kids are, play, are playing. Um, I think my, my dad and I are high-fiving. I don't know what we're doing. So we're just, so they're, they're coming back together. And it was really a beautiful moment of just seeing two, two individuals in their respective roles, a grandmother and, and a mother, putting aside those titles and saying we're coming together as sisters in Christ. And we're going to reconcile. And even if it's messy and raw, and it was, and we may not even be able to talk through all the what led into that, but we are going to come together and, and love each other. And we did. We sat there on the front porch and ate ice cream. I just never saw that happening. We just sat there. and Actually, we took the photo after that. We still took a photo. You go to my parents' house, there is a photo up on the wall. And uh, my wife doesn't like that photo, uh, but, but we're never going to take another photo. So it's just going to stay there. <laughs> Forever, this 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 picture, we're all like, you know, just it's like a, just like a war just happened, and we're all just sitting there. Um, but it was a beautiful moment. And you want to talk about power in the Christian life? You want to talk about this? What does what does the Spirit enable us to do? That kind of thing in messy, difficult, challenging moments to be able to go to somebody and apologize and to be humble enough to say, "I'm sorry for what I contributed to it." And, and to say we're sisters in Christ, and we're going to come together, and we're going to reconcile. And I, reckon, I know even in sharing that story, there are people that are like, I've had moments like that, and there was no coming out of the house and apologizing and reconciliation. We're still living in that tension. But the promise of the Bible is that through a new father, the promise of the gospel, this new father and this new family, we have this new reconciling power to bring peace to moments like this, even into dysfunctional spotlight kind of uh, moments in our family that are just so challenging and so difficult. But this is the hope that we have through Jesus. He takes down this dividing wall of hostility. So like Isaac and Rebecca, we've been selfish. And like Jacob, we've manipulated. And like Esau, we've been foolish. But in Jesus, we are new creations with a brand new power to make peace in, in and through all of that in our families. Let's, uh, let's close with prayer. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.